Well, a few weeks ago, the Briggs family, we had an opportunity to be in Phoenix. My parents live in Phoenix, and my brother and his wife and their four kids from Colorado decided to come to Phoenix with us. So we had uh, quite a great time. I mean, what a wonderful place to visit Phoenix when it hit 122. Um, that's the hottest I've ever felt. Everyone says, oh, it's a dry heat. Well, yeah, well, so are ovens and hair dryers, but I don't want to stay in front of them either. Um, but we had a great time. And, and some of you know, because I've shared some stories before, some of you know that uh, my brother and his wife have two biological children and two adopted children from Ethiopia. And so because of this, they certainly know and are deeply aware of Ethiopian culture and food and language and currency and customs. And so we get a chance to kind of learn from them about that while we're together. And uh, during vacation, my sister-in-law told us that um, Christian women in Ethiopia, they often choose to get a tattoo right on their forehead. And if not on their forehead, on their temple or on their wrist. And I've got a couple pictures here. You can see this is very uh, traditional, the actual design of the cross too. And um, so sometimes they even carve it, have it actually carved into their skin permanently. And you may think, well, why is that? Because when they became Christians, followers of Jesus, they wanted to identify with Christ all the time in every situation. And in some senses, it became a visual accountability Right? That they knew that they couldn't just act one way and then come over here and act completely different. So it was their way of actual visible, visible accountability, not just for themselves, but also for other people. I've been thinking a great deal about that since, since Julie told me that. And uh, because I, I'm convinced that today that the world longs to see Christians living consistently. Now, of course, we don't necessarily need to get a tattoo on our forehead, but what would it look like for us if we actually had that mindset? And I've been thinking a great deal about this word congruence, and I find myself using it much more regularly in the past uh, year or two. You know, this idea of congruence, of, um, you know, balance, consistency, match, that when I say one thing and do another, that they line up, right? So there's alignment in that. And so if you could summarize all of 1 John, the whole a chapter of 1 John chapter 2 would be this, live congruently. Live congruently. That's what John is after. Now, many of you uh, were here for the Ash Wednesday service that we had in this building uh, this spring. And if you've been to a traditional Ash Wednesday service, you know that part of it is taking the palms that were burned from last Palm Sunday that are kept, and those ashes are then used when you come forward, if you want, to have ashes in the shape of a cross put on your forehead. Now, if, you, if you've done that before, if that's happened to you, you know that's only for a couple hours or the rest of the day, right? Okay, we can put up with that. And people say, oh, you got a smudge on your face. No, 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 it's Ash Wednesday. Um, oh, okay, that's interesting. But imagine it being tattooed on your forehead all the time. These Ethiopian women believe that it's that important as they follow Jesus that they know and everyone else knows this is who I am, and I want to be congruent. I want to live congruently all the time. So John says, in, a, in essence, live your life in such a way that there might be this tattoo on your forehead, that wherever you go, you would know the truth, the truth of Christ Jesus that would be with you in every avenue, in every situation that you might be in. So John writes this letter that we are spending the summer journeying through. He writes this letter, and then he writes two postcards after it, 2 John and 3 John. Very tiny, very small. You know, 
just as a way of reminder in terms of who is John, you know, John was one of the sons of Zebedee, uh, and, and that means the sons of thunder. His brother was James. And if you're a son of thunder, it means you're known as being loud and bold and boisterous and not shying away from things. And uh, we know that a uh, part of his family personality. He was an apostle. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was the author of the Gospel of John and of Revelation. So he had some writing to do on his own. He was a fisherman. He was a member of Jesus' inner circle. And at this point, he's quite old. And you'll notice throughout the letter, and some of you picked up on this in your house church this week, that he actually refers to the listeners, the readers of his letter as little children. Well, when you're very old, just about everybody becomes a little, little child to you uh, in how you think. And John writes this letter to believers. He has a lot to say to those of us who've decided to be followers of Jesus. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, or you're not exactly sure what your journey with Jesus looks like, um, there's actually plenty, plenty for you to learn about John as well. Um, and I think, uh, I hopefully you've been using your packets that you have. If not, I know in the back, right, uh, before you go out the door, there's some if you want to get up and grab one, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, but there are other um, church leaders, just so you know, some other church leaders that were coming in to this particular area, this particular church context and saying, no, 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 what you've been taught, actually, we have the secret. We know what we're talking about, and we have the secret, and the truth's only been revealed to us. And the people in the church are going, wait, what? I thought what we, taught, we were taught earlier was the right thing. And John is saying, no, 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 no. These people don't have a secret side of the truth. Don't, don't fall for that. And so John is combating this lie, and he wants to give the readers a litmus test. And this litmus test is to know exactly how we know God, exactly the truth of how we know who God is. And that's why this idea of truth and lies and being people of truth and being liars, that's why John is obsessed with that in the book of 1 John. He wants them to know the truth about God and not be led astray by these other people who are saying, no, you've got it all wrong. So here's what John is after. If you could summarize all of John all summer, I'm going to give it to you in one sentence. Here it is. All right. The truth is found in Jesus Christ and the truth of our commitment to him is found in how we obey and abide. If you want to know the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and you want to live out that truth, it's found in how we obey and how we abide. That's the whole book. If you miss the rest of the summer, you're on vacation or out of town, that's it. All right? Now, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading the packet in 1 John. Different translation than normal, not having chapters and verses in there. That's actually been really good for me. And I find that I'm able to actually enter into the passage a little bit more. And I find myself reading the whole passage rather than stopping at some chapter breaks. And so um, one of the things that I've noticed, there are two main things I've noticed reading all the way through in the packets. Two things. The first of all, first one is contrasts, the dichotomy, kind of the polar opposites that are used. And you see a slide here, right? Light and darkness, truth and lies, old commandments, new commandments, God's people, the world, Christ, antichrist. Father, children, children of God, children of the devil, loving by words, loving by action, and then life and death. How many of you have picked up on that in terms of uh, reading through that, the contrast? Sure. Yep. Yep. The second thing is this. John, what I love about John is he's simple. He's simple. You don't need a seminary education to understand the book of John. He really lays it out nice and clear for us. And he says, basically, you want to honor God? You want to know the truth? Love God and love others. 
He's spent time around Jesus, who all Jesus and his mission was about loving God and loving others. He said, that's, that's my message too. So I want to encourage you to pull out your packet if you have it. And if not, again, you can jump in the back and, and grab one. That's for you. And Aubrey's going to come up again, and she's going to actually read the packet. Yep, and maybe we can pass out some more packets. If anybody needs one, just raise your hand, and we'll make sure we get some to you. And so we're going to be starting. Um, uh, Aubrey's going to start reading, I believe, on the beginning of page three. That's right. Is that right? And uh, so I would ask um, that you would listen carefully as she begins reading chapter two, uh, which begins uh, at the first paragraph break on page three of your packet. Thanks, Aubrey. Now, I know uh, that last week, um, many of you in your house churches spent time developing questions. And uh, if you didn't, we're going to get a chance to, to do this together here in just a moment. Uh, I want to teach you a, a Hebrew word. Uh, it's, the, it's the word shavruta. Let me hear you say shavruta. Shavruta. Let me show you a slide so you see how it's spelled. Um, sometimes it's uh, pronounced as written with an S, so shavrusa is sometimes how it looks. But it means friendship. It means friendship. But in, in a, a rabbinical setting where people are learning to become rabbis, it's called a yeshiva, kind of a high school, college, seminary direction if you're going to be a rabbi. And uh, so they would do this thing called shavruta where you would grab what's called a study partner. You would pair up and you would look at a passage, but you wouldn't give answers. All you would do is ask questions. You would just ask questions about the passage. And so some of you did that in house church last week, which is wonderful. But here's what I'd like for you to do. With what you just heard, with what's in your packet or in your Bible, I just want you to ask some questions to the person next to you. Don't answer it. Don't let the person across from you answer it. I just want you to come up with some of those questions. If you came up with questions from house church that are still lingering, ask that, say that out loud, okay? I'm going to give you like four minutes to do it, okay? It's not going to be long, but just partner up with somebody, Introduce yourself to them if you don't know them, and I just want you to ask questions. Like if John were here, what would you want to ask John based on the passage? Okay? Make sense? We're going to do some shavruta. All right? So partner up with someone and begin to ask questions about what you see. All right? Ready? Go. Okay, I, I do have to admit I was a little disappointed with how tame you all were. If you actually go on to YouTube, you can type in Shavruta, and you can watch these Jewish men, and some of them little boys, that are participating in Shavruta. And this is what they're doing. They're animated, and they're yelling, and it looks like they're mad at each other, and a fight is about to break out. They're not mad. They are passionate about God's Word. And they will do whatever it takes for them to understand what God wants. And they believe the, the rabbis have believed with Shavruta through the, through the years that the best way you learn is to actually ask questions and interact around it rather than just be quickly told the answer. Now, that's hard for us. We're used to just stand up and tell, tell me the answer. But Shavruta helps us wrestle with this, doesn't it? Man, and I, I hope that's come up in your house church last week or in future weeks. But I want to just encourage you, just a side note, when you're reading the Bible, see if you can just say, in this passage, can I come up with 15 questions? And just see what happens. My guess is you're going to learn more. You're going to learn more. So that's, that's what Shavruta is. They were very passionate because they weren't mad at the person. They were excited to want to know what God had to teach them in his word. And uh, so something, else, for something for us to think, first time, okay, we did an okay job. And next time, I want to see some, 
some voices raised and some hands flailing when we do Shavruta. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to answer all of these, by the way, but I want to address some of these. And some of you in your house churches sent me the questions, which were really good, uh, that you all discussed, and I'm very grateful for that. So I'm going to try to uh, hit some of those, but I guarantee you I'm not going to address every question. And in many ways, I'm glad I'm not going to, because that allows us to wrestle with it deeper and more. And I think that's very important for us. Yes, there's truth, but questions actually drive us closer towards the truth as well. So, uh, you know, right at the beginning there, um, you know, John says that the purpose of the letter very clearly is that we don't sin. He really wants this congregation that he's writing to to not sin. And then he gives us good news here. He says, but even if uh, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John tells us this good news right away. And then he says this. He says um, that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, some of us who maybe have grown up in church, maybe we know what that means, or maybe we've been too nervous to ask, what does atonement or atone mean? And uh, atonement simply means at one mint. So if you took the word atone and pulled them apart, at one is what you get. So when God brings us together, he's, we're separated from him in our sin, but the process of him bringing us together to be at one with him is then the work of atoning. All right, does that make sense? Because of God's holiness and perfection, sin cannot, be, cannot go unpunished. And God actually out of his justice says to us, he doesn't say to us, excuse me, he doesn't say, don't worry about it, I'll just turn my head the other way and we'll sweep it under the cosmic carpet and we won't ever worry about it. We'll just call it even. In his justice, he actually says your sin is a big deal. And we're doomed to die because of our sin. That's the bad news. Fortunately, the good news is, as a sign of his grace and mercy, he sent his son Jesus in our place. So God's wrath was not turned towards us. His head was turned toward his son, Jesus, who took it on himself, not on us, and made our relationship that was torn apart, now brought together at one, that atoning sacrifice for our sin. And then John says, how do we know that we know God? Like, if I, I think I know God, how would I know God? He says, nice and simply, if we obey what God commands, we actually know God. We know God. He says, by this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. Now, this is my theme verse. This is my life verse. And for about 15 years, this has been it. It guides my life. I don't do it perfectly, but it's what brings me back together. Now, if you don't have a, a, a life verse or a theme verse, that's fine. There's no rule that says you have to have one. But I want to encourage you to think about having one. And this has been mine. I, I learned it in a different translation. Um, and different translation is this. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Very simple. Very simple. And if you've been through the discipleship group, you know that because we've had to memorize that. That's very important. If we claim to know Jesus, then we must walk as Jesus did. I have to live a life that resembles his. And John says, if I don't, if I say this, and then I go over here and do this, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. It's a little harsh, but it's true because he's, what he's getting at is the truth. John is saying, live congruently. If you say you're going to follow Jesus, do it. If you're not going to live like him, just don't say it then. Live congruently. 
And this is the key verse in the passage. In fact, it may be the thesis statement of the entire letter. And it's 1 John 2, 6. And then later he says, If I say that I love God, but I hate my brother or sister, then I deceive myself thinking that I'm actually in the light. I think I'm walking in light, but I've been blinded by the darkness by saying I love God, but I, I hate these other brothers and sisters. I have resentment, I have hurt, I have pain, I have something I don't want to deal with. I, I just don't want to ever want them around. But yeah, God, you're great. John says, you're missing the point. You're deceiving yourself. You're a liar. That's a little strong. Remember, Jesus, uh, John spent time around Jesus, right? He spent these three and a half valuable years around him. And he heard Jesus say this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Racha, by the way, Racha, you got a kind of hawkaloogie when you say it. And the reason being is that I'm so mad at you, Racha, I want to spit at you. That's what Racha means. That I'm clearing my throat to spit in your face. If anyone says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. Go and make it right with your brother or your sister. Then come back and offer your gift. No, um, there are three men in my life who have hurt me very deeply. It was almost a decade ago. But two, two years after this incident, where I had been deeply hurt, I remember I was in the Lansdale Library doing some prep for some other things, and I read 1 John chapter 2. And I read this passage, and I was struggling to forgive, and was quite bitter and holding this against these men. And I remember um, so moved by reading 1 John 2 that I pulled out uh, my legal pad, and actually wrote them a handwritten letter. And I said, First John 2 tells me that if I say that I love God, but I've harbored bitterness, and I want ill will towards other people, that I'm a liar. And I don't want to be a liar anymore. So I invited these three men to join me for lunch. And it took everything in me, in my physical, emotional, mental state, to be able to take them out to lunch and to talk through our differences. And I acknowledged my hurt. And I also acknowledged that as hurt people hurt people, that I probably had hurt them too. And if so, I wanted to hear how I had hurt them. And I wanted to confess that. And I wanted to ask for their forgiveness. And truthfully, even though it's been Almost a decade since that happened, there have been times where that resentment and that bitterness can creep back in. And I still have to say, Lord, you got to forgive me. I don't want to be a person that's in the dark. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to say I love you, but the person I see who says they love you, I hate them. I don't want to do it anymore. And so I've had to cleanse myself regularly, and he cleanses me, but to admit that and have the uh, the boil lanced off of my soul so that I can be made right. And even though it's been almost a decade and those times creep in, I ask God to forgive me and to give me a heart that wants to 
forgive and not be resentful or judgmental. And every time I drive by that restaurant where we met, I can still picture it. I can still picture what we ate. I can still picture the table we were at. Every time I drive by, I just pray for those three men. I don't know if they're praying for me, but that's not really for me to find out. But to pray for them. And I've just had to remember this idea that if I say that I love God, but I hate my brother or sister, I deceive myself in thinking that I'm in the light. So I want to ask you the question, who is that person, that family member, that former boss, that former friend, that former spouse, who you have disdain for, resentment in your heart that's built up like plaque on your soul? I want to say this, because if John were here today, he'd say this, whoever just came to mind, that's the work you have to do this week. That's your job. To make that right. You know, John is clear and simple, but he's not easy. <laughs> I wish I could just write this off. I wish it were confusing so I didn't understand it, right? It was Mark Twain that said, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do. I think John makes it simple because he knows this has a punch to it. You know, then he gets into this weird kind of poetic se section, right? Where he talks about, we are writing these things, or I'm writing to you, right? And as an author myself, I always perk up when I hear someone say, this is why I'm writing. This is the point of why I put this whole thing together, why I sat down uh, with pen and paper to write it. And he tells us exactly what that is. It makes it sound like this section of poetry. It's a little bit confusing, right? He goes, talks about children, then he talks about fathers, then he talks about young people, then he talks about children, and then fathers and young people. And I go, where, where are the women in this? You know, I guess they're, they've got their stuff together. Uh, but, but he just goes into this repeating thing. And this stanza starts with, I am writing to you. And he says several things. Why did he write? Because your sins are forgiven, because you know him, because you've conquered the evil one, you know the father, you are strong, God's word abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. He wants to make it very clear. Here's exactly why I'm writing. If you miss it the first time, I'm going to say it again. And then he says in this middle section, he says, don't fall in love with the world. Don't fall in love with the world. What the world runs after is not what the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God is about, which prompts a question in me. This was one of my Shavruta questions this week. How do I know if I'm loving the world or not? How would we know? I think, it's, I think of these four things. How would we know if we're loving the world or not? Where is our time and our attention? Where do we daydream? What are our hopes and aspirations? What are the things that crush us? So what has your mind in a given week? The second one, identity. Where do you find your purpose and your meaning? From whom do you find their validation to be important for your identity formation? Right? Motivation. Why do you get up and do things? If you really are... Get honest with yourself of your motivation. It re will reveal what drives you, what you care about, what's important. And then finally, money. How do you spend your money? Or if you had lots of money, what do you dream of spending it on? I believe that we can figure out if we're loving the world or not based on our time and attention, our identity, our motivation, and what we do with our money or the money we wish we had. And John says trends change, things come and go. Fashion styles, what's trending on Twitter or Facebook, that'll change within the hour. 
But the, the staying power are those principles that are enduring like a marathon. And just endure to the end. And that's why John, he says, the truth is not something that's going to change next year or next season or next week. It remains. And he said, people, don't let other people stray, allow you to stray from the truth. Then there's this weird section. Some of you said, Antichrist? Oh, boy. Here we go. How many of you, like, kind of winced up a little bit? Got a little tight? Oh, boy. Antichrist. Here we go. So what is this all about, the Antichrist? In the Bible, John is the only person that mentions the Antichrist. Now, Paul seems to kind of infer it, but he never actually uses the phrase Antichrist. But he kind of talks about it. Uh, he calls him the, the man of lawless, 